0: You're listening to Cancer Covered. The healthy skepticism of science and medicine has emerged increasingly as overt hostility uh, to a degree and frequency like nothing I've ever really seen before. And it has made interactions a lot more challenging. It's eroded a lot of the satisfaction that you get, honestly, in my job, dealing with that. Uh, it's made the work harder, and it's really magnified a sense of futility sometimes. And, and I, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm really struggling with that still. And it's contributed to me personally experiencing some of the worst burnout of my career, which I'm in the middle of right now, and I'm, I'll be very honest about that. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. Here's the good news. Cancer treatments have never been more effective with fewer toxicities than ever before. As a result, cancer patients are surviving longer and better than ever before. But now for the not so good news. We're running critically short of the healthcare professionals we need to deliver cancer care, and burnout is a major cause of the shortfall. Burnout occurs when suboptimal working conditions erode morale and job performance, and it's leading more and more healthcare professionals to leave the medical profession every year. The situation was bad before COVID, but the strains of the pandemic made the situation much worse. In today's episode, we'll explore healthcare worker burnout, what it is, what causes it, and how to cope with it, with my guests, oncology nurse Carrie Ann Art and oncology social worker Tom Beckers. Carrie ann Tom, thanks for being here today. You're my welcome. Pleasure. Why don't you guys introduce yourselves to our listeners. Carrie ann why don't you go first? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: I'm Carrie ann um, I became a nurse 10 years ago. I went back to school while raising my children and being a part-time worker. Um, afterwards, I started my career working on second floor rehab. I worked there for three years. I left... Um, due to weekend work and my kids starting to really get involved in stuff. I then went to a triage position in which I didn't love sitting behind a computer and not seeing my patients. And that's what brought me here and I have been here for six years. And
0: here is working in the cancer center.
1: Yep Green Bay oncology yeah mm-hmm.
0: well, in six years you become one of the anchors of the of the team and, and we're, we're sure glad to have you so. Tom, tell our audience a bit about yourself.
2: I've been at the hospital at Green Bay Oncology actually about 30 years. Came out of school and uh, started here and was on the medical oncology unit right from the start. Did social work discharge planning at the time, then uh, got my psychotherapy certification, did counseling for about 15 years here at St. Vincent's. Worked then on the inpatient oncology unit for about five, six years after that, and then from there, left the hospital, went to Unity Hospice for a year on their bereavement team, worked with Carrie Ann there. Then been back at Green Bank College about 10 years now, Run a cancer support group here, do nuts and bolts as far as working with patients and their loved ones, helping them through the cancer journey.
0: Your job's primarily focused on helping patients and their families and loved ones deal with uh, stresses in and around a cancer diagnosis. But you must see, in the course of your day-to-day work, the stresses that healthcare workers go through, as well.
2: Definitely, that's a huge part of what what we deal with day in and day out, looking at the environment we work with and, and the stresses from diagnosis through treatments to end of life decision making. It.
0: The word burnout gets thrown around a lot. How would you explain what burnout is?
2: It's an, a phenomenon where we experience a number of physical, emotional reactions to being caretakers. Feeling overwhelmed and exhausted by our work demands, if it's the day in and day out stresses and demands, and we're feeling detachment and numbness and emotional disconnectedness to our jobs and, and our coworkers and patients, loss of interest in activities that we may have found enjoyment at one time is a big part of it as well, just the inability to find enjoyment
0: and that's really how the world health organization describes it and i'm reading here chapter and verse burnout is a work-related condition characterized by emotional exhaustion dissatisfaction with one's accomplishments and depersonalization which is a form of being detached mentally and emotionally from one's job the cause is thought to be chronic job-related stress and unmanaged workplace stress you had said a moment ago that as healthcare workers, we're supposed to be caring for people, and we often don't think much about caring for ourselves or pay proper attention to that. Do you think that there might be something about the nature of people that get drawn to healthcare in the first place that predisposes them to that sort of risk?
1: Absolutely. I think being a nurse, you are a very empathetic person. You're there to listen and help others all the time. You often feel things that they don't even know that they're going to feel yet or that they are feeling. takes a toll.
2: Tom, well, what do you think? I agree with Carrie Ann. I think our, our inherent ability or our, our desire to want to care for others, be that listening ear to people at whatever point they're at in their cancer experience, is a huge part of what makes us who we are. Yeah, we're wired a certain way to, to care for others in a way that so many others may not be able or willing to do.
0: Have either of you ever had the experience either at the end of a shift or maybe for moments or hours or days at a time of just feeling like that empathy muscle has done one push-up too many? You just feel that that part of yourself detached or depersonalized? Have either of you ever had that experience?
1: I would say, yeah, yeah, I have. I go home Exhausted after certain days, depending on what that day brings, whether it's a a new patient and you're teaching them, explaining to them, watching the wheels turn in their head of what's happening, whether somebody passes away that you really cared about, all of it. There's some really hard days and you go home and you're just exhausted.
0: Have you ever felt that, Tom?
2: Sure, definitely. Definitely certain patients are going to really have a special connection, whether we see them over and over here in the clinic and have an opportunity to get to know them so well. If they have kids, same as age age as ours, just the the commonalities between us can be very, very difficult to take sometimes. Uh, The holidays have always been a difficult time for me. It's supposed to be a joyous time, and yet we're seeing patients struggle with their day-to-day lives, the impact of cancer. And
0: I felt it too. There there are times at the end of particularly long call shift, or if it's been many, many days on duty, you feel that part of yourself that's supposed to be available and vulnerable and and exposed. That feeling part of yourself can can become exhausted. And we're not at our best. I mean, people can experience it. People can see it. It erodes both job satisfaction and it also erodes how well we do our jobs. It's so hard for healthcare workers to even talk about, to admit, because there's almost a a shame about it. I mean, um, I was frankly even hesitant to put this on here. It's something for us to talk about and, and ask about it because I, I think people people think, ah, oh, I, I can't, I can't admit that. I can't admit that. You know, there's days where it's it's just it's hard. You know, to feel that that well of compassion, or to, you know, to feel like it runs dry.
1: Um, Many of us have to go home or leave work to continue on with our day, so it's hard to even decompress and think about the day because you're off to the next thing.
0: I mean, it, it does. It's a magical thing about mercy and compassion because it does fill up with periods of rest, periods of reconnection. But if we are having additional responsibilities, it becomes, you know, even harder.
2: I think one of the keys is finding someone that we can confide in if we're experiencing this depersonalization or elements of burnout. Who is it that we can trust to open up with, whether it be a coworker, whether it be your spouse at home, whether it be... A close friend, someone that we can really be honest with and say, this is what's happening. I'm struggling in this and then allow them to support you at whatever level they can. So it's it's really being vulnerable and willing to, to share your honest feelings and your struggles. And, and through that, I think hopefully they'll provide some positive feedback or your willingness to really divulge what you're going through can be helpful.
0: And Tom, you're really getting at some of the initial action steps. I mean, the very first action step that is recommended repeatedly in all the references in the published literature is uh, mindfulness, just being aware of one's own emotional state. Kiryanne, you had said it earlier about nurses being empathetic and those of us who go into healthcare that are empaths or, you know, empathetic people who feel empathy so strongly that sometimes they get a little bit confused about whose emotions are whose. Mm -hmm. It's common among nurses. It's common among social workers. Um, Common among physicians. And I think every, all three of us sitting around this table has elements of that. It can be hard to be aware of one's emotions and to be able to take the time and step outside and say, what is it I'm feeling? Am I angry? Am I sad? Am I tired? Am I exhausted? Just being able to even name them, taking that simple mindfulness step, can lead to the next step, which is self-care and then seeking help when needed. But it has to begin with us being aware of our own emotions. Now, while we're on the topic of empathy, a question that had occurred to me in thinking on this topic is empathetic connection to patients is a critical part of our job, but then we also talk about the importance of healthy boundaries. What's the difference, and how does one recognize the difference between healthy, vibrant, therapeutic connection, and how does that coexist with a healthy
2: boundary I think that's a wonderful point, the struggle, and if we're naturally a very caring, empathetic person, our ability to know what our limits are and to not lose that ability to connect with patients at that level and and have that empathy, knowing what our our triggers are to know that we're going down the road of burnout or non-empathy is a key part. My own personal pointers about
0: what constitutes healthy boundaries is based more on experience uh, than on anything I've read or on any published research that I'm aware of. I think where boundaries, emotional boundaries, and responsibility between a healthcare worker and a healthcare patient become unhealthy is the following. Both healthcare workers and healthcare patients have a role in managing the illness. There are certain things that patients must be and can only be responsible for. And then there are things that the healthcare worker must be and and can only be responsible for. The first is that boundary can become blurry when our desire to help causes us to offer to take responsibility for things a patient should be taking responsibility for themselves or in feeling responsible for things that the patient should be taking care of responsibility for themselves. I think that's one place where boundary issues can become disrupted and confused from time to time always with the best of intentions, of course. I think another place where boundary issues can break down is when healthcare workers either don't have a clear sense of what they can and cannot do, meaning this is the breadth of what I can offer, but also this is the limits of what I can offer, and they're either unaware of that or they have a sense of lingering guilt about it. And I think that's where... Boundaries can become a bit frayed. As far as the emotional boundaries, having struggled with this some personally this week because of bearing witness to something that a patient I was pretty close to went through. In our work, we bear witness to a lot of things, and it's inevitable, and I think even obligatory, that whatever stress or sadness or sorrows our patients are going through We take a bit of a sip from that cup. I think that's inevitable. I would argue that at some point it's even necessary, but it's just a sip because whatever they're going through, that experience belongs primarily to them. And when we start to get confused about whose experience that is and whose share of sorrow or sadness or stress is greater, then I think the boundaries become really, really blurred and unhealthy. I think that last part's on us. That does take some work because it's, Sometimes it's easy to get lost in there. I think it's wrong and incorrect to say that we must close ourselves off to those things. I I think it's necessary to to still feel those things and feel them keenly, but we only have a
2: share in it. Yeah, great point. I think our ability to know those, our boundaries and and what's appropriate and what's not, what's Mm -hmm. in our best interest health-wise and emotionally is critical all the way through. and, And like you said, experience is a key part of our ability to recognize Our limits and our boundaries if we ever lose the ability to connect with people and and show that support then we have no business being in this profession but yet at the same time if we're getting too involved where we're not able to step back and and realize
3: our role and their role Um, that's critical as well no one should carry the burden of cancer alone and while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set we all agree on this one simple idea Hi, I'm Dr. Gaiu, a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. And these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them.
0: Hi, I'm Madison Young.
3: And I'm
2: Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day.
0: Our patients and physicians agree. Sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic.
3: That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you, wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support.
0: We've talked a lot about the regular stresses of the job and the regular ups and downs and challenges of the job, but since 2020, We've all experienced either a magnification of some stresses that were just a little bit there or the emergence of some stresses that that really weren't there before. And of course I'm talking about how the work environment has changed for all of us since the pandemic and even the entire culture and debate around healthcare science generally since the pandemic. Kirrianne, I'll start with you. You've been in healthcare for quite a while before the pandemic and you know through it, and after. What changes, if any, have you seen?
1: In the nursing world, we've seen changes in being able to get the right equipment that is needed. We reported to work when many, many, many others were at home, and others at home were stressed about having to stay home or then having to be going somewhere and how nervous they would be and here we are as a healthcare team coming into work every day facing mm-hmm. it not really getting that break that everybody else did patients coming in and or canceling when they would get nervous about coming in the not knowing if we're supposed to have somebody come in our clinic that had covid right trying to find those boundaries and doing the right thing for them to make sure that their disease wouldn't worsen while they were fighting off the COVID.
0: All the while while we're learning about COVID and how it's transmitted and the information's, you know, as hot off the presses and, you know, we we, we learned a little bit more every week and every week our approach seemed like had to change and it's a lot.
1: A lot of juggling where we became very good at, yep, we're going to do this. Nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to bring this person in. This one's got to cancel. It, it was kind of
0: all over the board. So the logistics were, were, were really something. And during the, during the height of the pandemic, has anything changed uh, about the environment you work in or, or the, the tone of the work since the pandemic?
1: No, for a short while, I would say a few weeks to a month, um, it was stressful different changed, but then we kind of all just worked through it mm. and things came back to normal for us, the new normal. And now going back to the no masking is becoming a, a new thing and we have to get back to the old normal.
0: It's been three weeks for us since the mask mandate at, in the hospital went away. And before that, it was almost three years before, you know, we were really seeing more than, than, than just the, the eyes of our coworkers. And kind of funny, I was on one of the uh, inpatient floors uh, the day after the mask mandate came down. And, and this the first time most of them had seen me without a mask. And in the time between 2020 and now, my beard went from salt and pepper to almost entirely Gandalf gray. And so everybody <laughs> was getting the double takes and things. So loss of the masks has been a mixed blessing as far as I'm concerned.
2: There have been... Um staff here that I didn't know had
0: a beard. That's
2: right.
0: right. (laughs) Tom, have you seen the healthcare environment change uh, as a result of the pandemic?
2: Probably the biggest change I've seen is dealing with the the impact of isolation where patients and family members, they're, they're so fearful of the pandemic, they isolate themselves and just the social connectedness has really changed and our ability to feel like we can visit people or reach out to people. And it's really taken some creativity or challenges to to stay connected with people as workers I think we worked from home for a while didn't have the opportunity to see people face to face that was a real struggle our support group went virtual for the last four years or finally going back in person next week so that'll be good
0: that's been a bit of a mixed blessing for you because I think your, your attendance has actually benefited from the easily accessible
2: online right and people have seen the benefit of that we've People really appreciated the opportunity to still use technology in a positive way to connect that way. So we're going to be resuming, but keeping the Zoom connection. So it'll be a dual support group, so people have the option of both. But I think just people's ability to interact with others and and stay connected has been the biggest challenge.
0: The biggest change I have noticed: our country has always been a skeptical country. Has always had a do-it-yourself mentality, which is uh, I think a, a real strength that. However, has always led to a skepticism bordering on mistrust of experts of any kind. And when not want to misunderstand, I actually think skepticism is a, a wonderful thing, particularly of any kind of authority figure. Because the politicization of the pandemic and the polarization and some of the anti-science rhetoric that emerged during the pandemic is the healthy skepticism of science and medicine has emerged increasingly as overt hostility to a degree and frequency like nothing I've ever really seen before. And it has made interactions a lot more challenging. It's eroded a lot of the satisfaction that you get, honestly, in my job dealing with that. It's made the work harder and it's really magnified a sense of futility sometimes and, and I, I'll be honest I'm I'm really struggling with that still and it's contributed to me personally experiencing some of the worst burnout of my career which I'm in the middle of right now
2: so you become the victim of people's distrust or their general <laughs> skepticism of, of healthcare in general or Yeah
0: I think physicians particularly need to be okay with being questioned being second guessed being having their work checked, that that's 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 science done right. That's medicine done right. That's let's check the sums. Let's let's keep an open book. But when as is happening more and more the the, the motives uh, of, of of our work and our and our dedication are questioned sometimes belligerently, it it really it really eats at you. It's a hard thing to take mm-hmm. and it's got a lot of us questioning whether we're in the right job. Let me read you a couple of statistics that I found preparing for this episode. There was a 2020 survey of the nursing workforce that reported a burnout rate of 69% in nurses under the age of 25, and that was in 2020, and that was a almost a doubling of the report Incidents of burnout uh, of a similar survey that was done before the pandemic. Another similar survey that was published in 2023 in the uh, Mayo Clinic Proceedings, actually the lead author was uh, an old colleague of mine, Tate Scheinefeldt, who uh, I trained with. Estimated physician burnout rates uh, to be as high as 63% in the United States. And that was a 38% increase from uh, from, uh, pre-2020 levels. So, the pandemic has had a dramatic effect on burnout because one of the stressors of you know that contributes to burnout is working conditions and the satisfaction a person takes in their job is a big determinant of, of
2: whether your work environment is optimal or not. Um, It'd be interested well, to know what percentage of that 68 percent left the profession. How did that truly impact them in their day-to-day work? Or? Well, that it's interesting you say that. So, in 2020, only 57%
0: of physician surveys say that they would choose medicine again had they uh, been given the choice. I'm not one of those people. I'd still, I'd still do it. I still love the work. I hope to love it the way I loved it before again soon. And I think, I think I will. But. Of those physicians surveyed, one in three say they plan to reduce their work hours uh, within the next two years, and one in five say they plan to leave their jobs within the next five years. The result of that, as far as we project, uh, and we were already starting with a physician workforce shortage, uh, by 2030, uh, it's estimated that we'll be about 139,000 physicians short of the number needed to care for our population in this country.
2: And we're at a time when, when the aging, the demographics, the population is aging um, and projected to continue that over the next 10 to 20 years. So, of course, the demand for physicians, nurses, healthcare workers just keeps compounding. So, it'd um, be interesting to know what has changed or as, as the numbers go up, have the doctors, nurses, healthcare workers changed? they view burnout and, and their strategies to try to manage that and, and what they used to do years ago, is that continue to be the same or has that been forced to change as they've experienced more burnout? And- it's it's
0: it's hard to say. I know a lot of these surveys are repeated periodically and I know Dr. Jonna Felt and others work uh, continues and is updated regularly, so uh, I'm anxious to see what the results are going to be. You know, we've talked about the strains of the pandemic, Besides the pandemic, the changes in the way uh, that we work, system change, uh, the need to adapt an electronic medical record, which completely redone our workflow, actually in many good ways. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the electronic medical record, but like anyone who's worked in the business world and who has been dealing with email for 20 years before the EHR came up with an email equivalent, email is something that is a work magnifier in many ways because it essentially adds to the to the inbox without necessarily adding time available to do the work. And the, quote, inbox of the electronic health care record uh, has sort of done the same thing. And I think uh, learning how to work smarter and allocate time to deal with those tasks, which are cognitive, which uh, require thought, which require time, uh, you know, those... Uh, You can't just uh, manufacture time out of thin air, and I think uh, healthcare systems and healthcare providers uh, at all levels are trying to innovate new ways to do that. We've talked a lot about what burnout is like, and I'll just review again some of the symptoms. Physical exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, sometimes manifesting as low mental energy, decreased concentration, hopelessness, sense of helplessness, depersonalization, sense of detachment emotionally or mentally from one's work, from one's coworkers, uh, which can sometimes result in negative behaviors, either temper outbursts or overt neglect, mental distance from the job, uh, cynicism about the job, and overall reduced efficacy and satisfaction in the work. Those are the symptoms we've talked a lot about some of the conditions we haven't really mentioned some of the other real ones you know our our area wasn't hit as hard as some areas in the country by the pandemic but we were we were top of the list for quite a while we came very very close to being overwhelmed but you know new york city suffered actual and and other places suffered actual lack of resources Weren't enough vents available for patients who needed them. There weren't enough masks or gowns, you know, for the healthcare workers. And, you know, working under those battlefield conditions takes a, takes a terrible toll. But there's there's other uh, insufficiencies short of that. Lack of, insu- you know, insufficient staffing. Trying to working on working an understaffed shift is extremely stressful. Lack of recognition. Unfairness, either, you know, wh- whether that be wage unfairness or authority unfairness or unfairness of any sorts contribute tremendously to dissatisfaction.
1: It was a time where we had many people out for a week at a time with mm-hmm. COVID, and we offered to pick up. It would be nice to have an additional day off, you know, when you want it versus trying to fight for it.
0: We stepped up. Yeah. And, and we're still carrying the, the load and the burden from that. That that doesn't just go away with a night's rest.
1: yeah. And and today we're, the nurses, we're staffed okay, but you do see people outside of our clinic getting hired, rehired. They're making more, more Mm -hmm. than any of us, you know? Mm -hmm. So there is a a financial thing that's going around too, and that's everywhere in healthcare right now.
0: It is
2: uh, everywhere, I think, in almost every sector of our economy, honestly. I think we try to recognize things that, we have little control over the hospital or the clinic, a little control over, understand those dynamics. And yet, at the end of the day, how do you balance it out with our own needs, our family's needs, and, and how we're trying to support our, ourselves and our families. And we want to be sympathetic to what's going on within the clinic and the hospital and, and understand their struggles. But um, it's, it's a real battle and a real, real effort to, to balance it all out.
0: One of the final stressors we didn't talk about was value conflict or moral distress. And we see this particularly in cancer work or medicine generally when we're dealing with end-of-life issues. Moral hazard and value conflict occurs when people bear witness to choices that are made either by the patient or sometimes by the health team, that they're having difficulty squaring with their own personal values. Uh, And that can take many forms. Sometimes it can be the denial of care or the withdrawal of care in certain cases. In some cases, it can be the administration of treatment or patient seeking treatment. That seems ill-advised or excessively risky. And those are complicated uh, things because the patient autonomy is a cornerstone of medical ethics and patients being able to choose for themselves when when a choice is possible. But patient autonomy can sometimes come up against the personal values of healthcare workers who can still serve that need, but have to live in this middle ground of this is a a choice I have to serve, but I have mixed feelings about the choice. And particularly in dealing with crisis type care, end of life type care, that's a very common thing. And it definitely contributes to stress and and can contribute to burnout.
1: It's questioning if the patient truly understands all the options. Do they understand it all?
2: Right. I think our job is to give the patient and family as much information as they need to have to make informed consent decisions. And and you're right on. Client or patient autonomy is the foundation of everything we do and giving them that control and that ability to make decisions. And while we may not agree with it, they're the ones that have the right to, to make those decisions.
0: It's no secret that physicians have a lot of confidence in their opinions. I think everyone knows that. And one of the things that I've had to learn and continue learning is there's this little voice that happens in all of our heads. I, I don't know which philosopher uh, said this and if it was uh, Schopenhauer or one of the others. But, you know, we're, we're all intellectually conceited deep down inside most of us really think that if folks understood things the way we understood them that they'd agree with us and that they would choose what we choose now of course that can't possibly be true and we don't have all the facts or we don't have the you know the fullest perspective either but that voice requires a lot of active talking to when we're watching something happen or a choice made that we find personally distressing you know, there's that little voice saying, that, ah, if they just understood this the way I understood it, they would choose the way. And so tempting to try to nudge people towards our point of view. There's there's education, you provide the information, but once you can be reasonably sure that that information's been provided, people can and should choose for themselves.
1: Sometimes it it's a, a hard thing. thing. It is very hard. Sometimes they just want
0: somebody to choose for them. And sometimes they do. And sometimes patients don't want autonomy. And sometimes they surrender. And they have the right to do that. That That's a tricky one. I think you made a good point earlier, Carrie, and it is, it is really important for informed consent and assessment of patient understanding is, is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. And you always want to be watching. And, and are we sure? You know, are we sure they're aware? I think Brian Burnett, when we were talking in another podcast episode about research, informed consent, both for research and for regular treatment, is is an ongoing process. It's not just a one-time thing. So we always should be asking ourselves and, and, and keeping a weather eye out for understanding or lack thereof.
1: You sometimes see the spouses or the significant others or the daughters or sons of patients disagreeing, one mm-hmm. wanting this, one wanting that. And you kind of get put in the middle of that at times. That's a struggle, too.
0: It is. And I think particularly when the families themselves become confused about autonomy. And what I mean by that is who's choosing here and who has the right to choose? Uh, because, you know, strong feelings can uh, compel a person to say, no, 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 not your choice, but, but mine. Uh, with people we love, it's comes from a good place but it, it, it is challenging in, in helping people maintain their own voice helping patients maintain their own autonomy if they want to and in helping families they have to make peace with it sometimes the same way we do it's even harder for them because they feel we feel things keenly they feel it even more keenly it's it's difficult so burnout we've talked about what causes it we've talked about what it looks like how can we cope with it and how can we prevent it
2: I think, first of all, recognizing what are the triggers that lead us to potential burnout. Are we feeling ourselves becoming less empathetic or, or more irritable or less detached from from patients or our day-to-day effectiveness of how we do, would normally do our job? Finding someone that we can share our struggles with. Who do we trust, whether it be a coworker, whether it be our family members, whether it be other colleagues? Just someone that, that we feel we can trust and really divulge what our struggles are. Identify those self-care strategies that are so important. What what do we do to take care of ourselves when we're feeling burnt out? Uh, Whether it be proper eating, sleep patterns, exercise, uh, meditation, journaling, a number of things that that can be very helpful and for us to identify what works for us. Carrie Ann, you've got to have some tips about that as an experienced
0: uh, nurse in oncology. What are your life tips uh, for yourself and others about how to cope with burnout?
1: trying different things. I'm one that really enjoys to work out. I find myself wanting my sleep, though. So then I find myself missing my workouts in the morning if I have an early shift. And I need to get better at, nope, I'm going to get up and work out. I feel better when I do it. So I tell myself, now I have to do it. So I have a lot of work in progress. In myself, I do know what helps. I just need to do it. And in the evenings... Maybe read, maybe watch TV. You know, everybody's got something different. What time can they wind down and and have time for themselves or with somebody that they really enjoy being with?
2: I think also we can't assume that our families understand what our world is like and to go home to them and expect them to be sympathetic to us and, and support us at a level that we need. I think we can actually assume that they probably do not understand because how could they unless they work in this business? So being patient with them and, and help them understand our struggles and what do we need from them? Is it just a listening ear at the end of a day? Is it mm-hmm. crying together? Is it allowing us to express our, our struggles and, and whatever they're capable of supporting us with to be okay with that? Consensus recommendations uh, from
0: uh, various different healthcare organizations, including the World Health Organization, uh, outline many of the things that you just said. Their five-point coping strategies consist of adequate sleep, exercise, Avoiding overwork, and by that they mean limiting overtime, avoiding working long stretches continuously without days off, and utilizing vacation. Mindfulness, that's self-awareness of emotion and you, Tom, had mentioned meditation as a practice and meditation need not be complicated and it need not be mystical. The simplest form of meditation is counting breaths and that is where you sit quietly and count your breaths one by one until you lose track of what number you're on and then you start over and you'll be surprised at how hard it is to get above 12. The third is seeking help early either through employee assistance programs or through, you know, your own healthcare providers, behavioral assistance. I would add those are things that we can do personally uh, and carry in like you. Uh, it's, it's it's always a work in progress, but I, I have to tout the benefits of sleep and regular exercise. Having made some of those adjustments myself in the last six weeks, I definitely can tell the days when I either haven't slept properly or have skipped the, the workout. It helps. It definitely helps. And let's face it, you know, much of our work schedules, sometimes our overwork schedules, sometimes our willingness to take overtime, sometimes our desire to seek overtime is financially driven. These are financially challenging times. I think we have to remind ourselves that as nice as overtime pay is or as nice as it might be to skip some vacation and make some extra money, our earning potential long term is compromised uh, if our mental health and wellness and ability to do our jobs is compromised. So uh, it can be kind of penny wise, pound foolish not to take care of ourselves and to take time uh, as we need it. Besides the things that we can do for ourselves individually, I think that we all have a role in trying to improve our system and trying to improve the quality of the work. None of us as much control as we would like but pressing for administrative reform, administrators and healthcare are just as stressed as we are, and they're struggling with new challenges, financial and, and, and uh, workplace, just as we are, but participating in Administrative surveys, participating in workplace talkbacks and town hall meetings when when available, getting involved in leadership as much as possible. One cannot change, you know, without being involved generally. And sometimes it isn't isn't enough to talk to leaders. It's 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 important to get in there and help bear some of the burden ourselves and try to change. For myself, particularly uh, given the need that we have for good social workers and good nurses and good physicians and good workers of all kinds, APPs and physician assistants, be a mentor, be a good mentor, be a role model, train the next generation, the ones that will succeed us and step in for us uh, when when it's time for us to step back, contribute to and promote and embrace systems innovation. Um, the only thing that's constant is change and the only way uh, our human EHR interface is going to get better is if we get better and we adapt our workflow and we keep pressing for ways to work smarter, not harder. And on even a larger scale, I think we all have to push for healthcare reform in our government, in our country. Without getting political about this, I think it has to start with an acknowledgement that there are good imperatives and valid concerns on both sides of the aisle. And neither team in our country right now is actually asking all of the questions. They're both asking some of the questions. Questions that we have to address are how much healthcare do we need? How much should every person expect? How much can we afford? And how can the cost be distributed fairly? And until we can come together and start answering all of those questions, honestly, things are only gonna get worse. We have to stop treating the healthcare debate like a Vikings-Packer game where you go and everybody puts on their jersey and we all scream and throw beer at the other side. Uh, We're never gonna get anywhere until uh, we recognize that this is a problem that we all own and nobody has all the answers at present. So promote rational discussion, beginning with ourselves and demand thoughtful action, not reactive grandstanding and political posturing from our leaders. Carrie Ann, Tom, it was really great talking with you today and thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com.